ahead and pull out your Bibles this morning. Open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and double dip. Romans chapter 1. 2 Corinthians 5 and Romans chapter 1. Anybody thankful to be in church this morning? Man, oh man, praise God. He's so good. <clears throat> I've had several people asking me this morning, wow, Andrew, what's with the collared shirt? And uh, that'll just goes to show when, when was the last time I wore a collared shirt? Zach Johnson said, hey, did you iron it? I said, no, it just never gets worn. <laughs> so the occasion is that yesterday, Heather and I were going to a wedding. And so I told Rose, uh, my four-year-old, I said, mommy and I have to go to a wedding. So I got to go change into my fancy clothes. She said, you don't have fancy clothes. <laughs> and I was like, well, I'll show you. So I went to a wedding last night. I looked halfway decent. And I wore a collared shirt today to prove to my daughter that I can indeed wear fancy clothes. Because I don't know if you know this, but this is fancy. <laughs> I dressed, dressed up for you today. Uh, she turns five in two days. So pray for me because I'm devastated. All right, moving on. Second Corinthians chapter five. How convenient is that? Number five again. Wow, just not nice. God's just keeping it in front of me. Um, we're gonna read verses 18 through 20 as we jump into the word of God this morning. Is anybody expecting to hear from God? Yes. Awesome. Anybody thankful the projector works this week? Yes. <laughs> Inside joke for those of you who were here last week and a few other times through the course of our church. <laughs> Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 18 says this, all of this, meaning this presentation of the gospel that we've just heard in 2 Corinthians 1 through 4, the writer says, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors. Somebody say ambassador. We are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. All this is from God. I'm excited about a new series that we are starting this week. I think it's gonna be really fun. And we're gonna spend the next handful of weeks uh, actually kind of working through and talking through sort of some like hot button issues that, are in, that we're all facing in the life that we're living, the world that we're living in, the culture that we're a part of, the nation that we're a part of. We're gonna talk about some stuff that we're facing today. And we're gonna talk about it because God wants to talk about these things. God wants to talk about these things. And I want you to remember that when God speaks about something, he speaks so that he can give us direction how to navigate these things. He's not just talking. He's not just rambling. He's talking on purpose. And he wants to give us direction on how to navigate different things that we're all trying to navigate. And when he speaks, the direction that he's leading us in is always in the direction of abundant life. Jesus said, the devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come to bring life and life abundantly. And so we're gonna hear from God on some stuff over the next handful of weeks and uh, it's gonna be really fun. And I think God's gonna lead us into life. And so I want you just to, to look at your neighbor and, and we're gonna announce the title of my, my series, uh, the title of the series, you're gonna announce it to them. So just touch somebody on the shoulder, be close enough to touch somebody and just say, you are, you are, you are a, you are a, you are a cultural architect. Cultural architect. 
the series we're going to be in for the next handful of weeks. Cultural architect. The Bible does not hide the fact that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God that we're singing about, the kingdom of God we're here to hear about, the kingdom of God is at odds. It is at odds with the values and the momentum and the foundation of the world that we live in. Uh, not, not against people, the Bible makes it so clear, not against people in some combative way, but against kind of just the momentum and the values, the spiritual forces, the Bible says, of, of the world that we're living in. And Jesus talked about this a lot when he was sharing and, and ministering when he was alive on the earth. He talked about being at odds himself with the world and the culture and the religious society of the day and different things that the world, ways the world was going. As after his life and death and resurrection and ascension, the rest of the New Testament, kind of the letters that were written as the church was being birthed and these letters that document what happened when people, when these Jesus followers began following Jesus in the world that they were living in, it's well documented throughout each and every one of those letters that there was tension, there was conflict, there was things to navigate as these people were following Jesus in the middle of a world and in a culture that just kind of like disagreed with them and the way that they were going and the way they were trying to do things. And yet, this is amazing. In the midst of all of the differences and in the midst of all of the conflicts between the kingdom of God and the way the world goes, the momentum of the culture and everything that we're living in, in the midst of all of the differences, God's desire is to reconcile the world to himself. This is staggering to me, that instead of just ditching the world and saying, fine, have your day, God, in his grace and in his love and in his mercy, chases that world down and says, I want you to be reconciled to me. Not only is his desire for the world to be recognized, re reconciled to himself, he actually puts in all of the effort to reconcile the world to himself. In the midst of the conflict, in the midst of the disagreement, we see a God who puts in a great effort to reconcile the world to himself. And the way he did it was by loving that world so much that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. He gave this son not to judge the world but to save the world through him. Or as 2 Corinthians 5 puts it, Jesus reconciling the world to himself by not counting their trespasses against them. This is good news. And then it says in 2 Corinthians 5 that we read that this Jesus reconciling the world to himself has given us this message. He's given us this message of reconciliation. We have been given this incredible message from an incredible God to give to this world that we are living in. We implore you, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. And over the course of the next several weeks, as we talk about being cultural architects, we're going to talk about a lot of different things. And I'm going to say some things that are probably going to be uncomfortable. Some people might think them controversial at different times. Some things might be uncomfortable or controversial just because they're true. They might be just because I'm going to say some things that are honest. Um, there's going to be some things I say that are kind of vulnerable. There's probably going to be some things that I don't say right. But there are things that we have to talk about. There's things that we have to talk about because as followers of Jesus, we are called to live and carry and create this culture, this kingdom culture that it oftentimes is in conflict with the culture and the world that we're living in. 
Jesus said that the greatest commandment, he said the greatest commandment is to love God with everything you've got. Heart, soul, mind, strength. He says the second great commandment is, is a lot like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Second Corinthians 5 says we've been given this ministry of reconciliation. And I don't know about you, but if we can just start off being honest, like that sounds really good in church. But if you really try to genuinely live that stuff out, like if you really want to love God and honor God with your life and everything that's inside of you, you really want to love people and, 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 and show God's love to them, you really want people to be reconciled to God, like you genuinely are looking for that, you will find that this task that Jesus has given you and given me is pretty challenging. In the midst of all these great intentions and good sounding sentences, like it's hard. This might not be a very pastor thing to say, but if I can just be honest, there are plenty of times when I'm asking God, how? How? Like, how, how do I, how do we, how do we live out who we're called to be when we're also living in a culture that just has such a different foundation than the culture that you're calling us to create? Like, I want to. I'm trying. I believe it. But how? Like, how do we really pull this off? Because there's times I'm wrestling with God saying, how? How do, I, how do I love you, God? How do I love you and honor you with my whole life? Like, absolutely everything. And love my neighbor as myself when, again, honestly, so many times there just seems to be so much conflict between what I feel like God has said and what it feels like might be loving. Between what God wants from me and what people want from me. Between what God wants from people and what people want from God. There's a few easy ways out of this tension. If you're into the easy road, which you go to Antioch and you love Jesus, and I'm on the mic, so I'm just gonna tell you, you don't like the easy way out. But there are a few easy way out, easy ways out. It's easy that we could just be cultural clones. We could just go with the flow and become whatever culture wants, whenever culture wants it, and then no one would ever be offended and it would be a whole lot easier. We could be cultural recluses, which I looked up the definition of that and I thought that is so appropriate for too many of us too many of the times. It says, one who doesn't want social contact. (laughs) Just keep everyone and everything at arm's length, live in our own little world, where there's no conflict with anyone because we just ignore everyone and we ignore everything and anyone that doesn't fit into our box, we just don't get too close. Or we could be cultural complainers. Again, so easy and something that, if we're honest, us church folk can be sort of responsible for being, which is like, you know, cultural complainers, kind of like that sports fan at, at, a, at a sports event who, who comes up close enough to the sideline but is still spectating and not on the field, like close enough to yell at everybody and tell everybody what they're doing wrong but not close enough to get in the game and do something themselves. That's a cultural complainer. Those would be the easy roads out. That would be easy and that is easy and I've done every single one of them. But I don't want to do every single one of them. 
And that's not what we're called to. We're, we're, we're called to be apostles, the Bible says. Apostle is this Roman word, Roman concept, where when the, Ro- when Roman, when the Romans were conquering the world, when they, were, they would conquer a new territory, they would send people called apostles. And basically it was these apostles' role to take to this new place Roman cultures and norms and, and societal ideas and demonstrate them for the sake of this new region so that everybody would become Roman and sort of assimilate them into that empire. And God takes that idea that was so broken, but he says, I've called you to be apostles. You're supposed to carry a different culture. And you're supposed to go into places and demonstrate and show what that culture looks like so that others can learn from it and come alive. We're called to be apostles. We're called to be ambassadors. Ambassadors who, who are representatives of a, of a different kingdom, in a different land, in a different culture. Not recluses, but being different, but still being in. We're called to be cultural architects. People who are willing to step in and do the hard work. Get our hands dirty. And do the work of building something. And, and going for something. Carrying a vision for something. And willing to put in the work and sit in the tension of believing for something that isn't yet in the middle of being where we are and just kind of carrying basically the belief that his kingdom might come on earth as it is in heaven. This is what we're called to. And this is what I mean when I say we're called to be cultural architects. I want to carry this kingdom. But we're at conflict. We're at conflict. And so as we talk about this culture that we want to build, we need to start in the foundation of what the culture is that we're called to build and where that foundation is laid And I heard a song one time that said, the beginning is a really good place to start. So we're going to go there. Nobody appreciated that one. Everyone's nervous. Like, oh gosh, what's he going to say? Genesis 1.1. And I'll just go ahead and have you turn there because it's so easy to get there. It's like page one. (laughs) So that's good. This is the foundation of the worldview, of the the foundation of the culture that we're trying to build. Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. This is the foundational blueprint for the culture that we are to build, that God, in the beginning, created the heavens and the earth. Our foundation, our worldview, our culture, our foundation is laid on this, that we believe that as we stand here existing on this amazingly beautiful spring day in Indianapolis, Indiana, hallelujah, (laughs) when we look around, We understand that at the most basic level, I did not make all of this. This isn't all about me, and I am not in charge. That's what Genesis 1-1 means. There is a God. We believe that by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things and in all things, and all things hold together in him. The universe, we believe, was created by God, the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of what is visible. God created all of this, and therefore God defines all of this. He is not subject to our opinion or understanding. We are subject to his design. That's the foundation. That's the foundation of the culture that we are living in. And and, and the world that we live in rejects this foundation in every way, which explains why there is 
such cultural conflict at such a foundational level. It's, it, it explains to me why if I can't end, I, I know it's like maybe not cool to say all this, but so many times I'm just like, I just feel like we're on totally different universes here. And this is why. Very quickly, this foundational difference leads to conflict between our two cultures. Something that we've already actually talked a lot about this morning, and I've sort of glazed over it as a given, but is actually pretty controversial to talk about it all in a place where we have to start this series, and, and that is sin. Culture rejects sin. It rejects moral absolutes, rejects absolute truth. It rejects God. Anything that suggests I need to change is bigoted, oppressive, and insensitive. And this presents a conflict for us as we believe that we have sin, and that means we need to change. And this results in preaching the good news that Jesus died to forgive you of your sins, and the response is, well, wait a second. What are you trying to say? What are you trying to say? The culture that we're living in, sin is not the cultural given that it is for us followers of Jesus. There's, and there's a question that comes up when we bring up sin, and I believe there's a question, this question that comes up, it's, it's not just from people who don't follow Jesus. It's not just from unbelievers. I think it's probably from a lot of us too, a lot of us Jesus followers. I know I ask this question a lot. Like, you know, because I'm sure that the majority of the people in this room are followers of Jesus, which means kind of by definition, you've recognized I have sin and I need Jesus. So I, I know that on, you know, so many levels, this is like a preaching to the choir thing, but I'm not doing this to prove a point. It's more just to mobilize us and, and say, how do we handle this conflict? Because this isn't about being right. This is about loving God with everything we have and loving our neighbor as ourselves. And sometimes that's hard, and the easy way would to just be right. But I want to learn how to love. And so we've got to talk about these things. So there's this question, even among Jesus' fathers who don't understand and accept the reality of sin. I know I've asked this question a lot. Is that, okay, if sin is a thing, okay, I believe sin is a thing or I don't, but either way, if sin is a thing, what is it? Sounds bad. But like, what is it? And you can kind of ask that from a place on a sliding scale of cynicism and acceptance, but still the question remains, okay, if there is sin, what is it? So I had you open to Romans chapter one. So go back to that if you went to Genesis one. Romans chapter one. We're gonna go through a few different chapters, do a few different, a little overview of Romans chapters one through three this morning because I think it's an incredible dissection and explanation of what this good news really is. It serves as a great outline for, for what the gospel really is. Starting in, in Romans chapter one, if you're there, say I'm there. Nice. Romans chapter one, uh, a guy named Paul wrote it. God uses Paul to write and it starts off with a welcome, but in, in verse 18, Paul has just mentioned that I'm not ashamed of this gospel. It's the power of salvation. And again, that's kind of where we, we start and stop is Jesus forgives you of your sins, but let's dig into the question, okay, if I have sin, what is it? In verse 18, the Bible says this, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. He's starting to define for us 
What is this sin that we need to be saved from? He has laid out for us, and we've begun this morning, understanding that God is the creator. God is the definer of everything that is. And so sin is kind of the the concept or the reality of whatever does not line up with that designer. Whatever is ungodly. The design is godly because God made it. Hence the L-Y on the end, right? So godliness is things by God's design. And the verse 18 says that God's wrath is against all ungodliness. So whatever doesn't line up with the designer, whatever doesn't line up with God, that is sin. And it says here in verse 18 that this ungodliness, or as a synonym, this unrighteousness, the opposite of the design, not being aligned with what God called things to be, he says that it suppresses the truth. That this ungodliness, when things are not in line, that they, it suppresses the truth. In other words, there's no neutral ground. There's no neutral ground. There isn't godliness, neutrality, and ungodliness. There's godliness and ungodliness. One or the other. You're either following the design or you're not. This is the blueprint. Verses 24, if you skip down, we're going to skip around a little bit, but I know you're smart people and you can keep up. Verses 24 through 45 goes on. It says, therefore, because of these things, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. So in verse 18... The Bible says that man has suppressed the truth. Verses 24 through 25 says that man has exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creator or the creature instead of the creator. So we know we are in truth when we are worshiping God, the creator, when we're honoring him, when we're following him, when we are being defined by the word of God, by the values of God, the desires of God, the instruction of God, the direction of God. That is how we know we are worshiping God. And we know that we have exchanged the truth, we have suppressed the truth, we have rejected this truth for a lie when we worship ourselves. The creature. When we worship the creature, when we follow ourselves, when we are defined by our own words and our own values, our own desires, our own instructions, our own directions, that is how we know when we have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. See, sin isn't just a word. It's not just like a word. And and, and it doesn't just mean like not behaving according to some certain list of behaviors. Sin is... Overall, the rejection of God. It's it's deeper than just about your behavior. Like it's deeper than just did you do this or not do that? Did you ever lie or what? Like it's it's that, but it's it's not that. It's deeper than that. Sin at its core is about your worship, not about your behavior. The, The question is simply who's in charge? Who, who do you honor with your life? You or God? That decision, that direction, that value. 
who's in charge. And this rejection of God works its way out in so many different ways, and it results in so many different things. This is where I think we encounter the complicated parts. Throughout the Bible, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, even as it was mainly written in different languages, there's different words and concepts that are, that are used for sin at different times. So you're not going to open up your Bible, look up sin, and find like the definition of sin. Romans 1 has given that to us. Sin is the suppression of the truth, the exchanging of God for a lie, worshiping the creature over the creator. So yeah, that's not really like a defined list, but it makes it make some sense. So different words that are used throughout the Bible are trying to capture not just like what sin is, but, but how does it play out and what are the results of it? So you'll see words like sin, obviously. You'll see words like trespass or transgressions or iniquity, you know, different, different words like that that you've probably seen as you read the Bible. And each one of these words is important and each one of these words is nuanced and they're, they're worth looking into because they're sort of uh, peeling back the onion you know, the, the layers, sin's not just the here's the apple, here's what it is. It's kind of like the onion. And all these different words are, are helping understand what does it look like in my life when I've exchanged this truth and, and all of these things. In the midst of all the words and concepts and ways that sin can work out in our life, I think there's kind of two really broad categories that sin can fall into. Number one, sin can be an action. Sin can be an action so you'll see words used in the Bible about sin being an action, and, and, and as you translate them, they, they translate to things like falling short or missing the mark, violating a command, crossing a line, committing an offense. There's an action to it. But the other kind of category as a, as a result and what sin looks like, it can be an action, but it's also, it's also a condition. It's also sort of a state of being and of existing, there's a state of being under sin. There's a state of being enslaved by sin. Or there's things that happen under sin just as a result of sin. So it's not just sin, but the result of it can be communicated as, as it, it doesn't line up with the design. There's the, that's the consequences. It's, it's things being broken because of sin, misaligned and twisted as a result of sin. This is why it's so complicated. This is why there's so much conflict. This is why relationships are conflict, are, 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 have a lot of conflict. Things get twisted. It's kind of the condition of sin. Romans 1 outlines clearly, so clearly for us, the, the reality of sin. Sin is, sin is real. Sin is, sin is a thing. I think it's worth, though, saying that sin's not the main thing. But it's a thing. And so, like, sin isn't God's main thing, but it's a thing. It's a big thing, but it's not the main thing. And so I don't want sin to be the main thing for me or for you or for our church or for the way we talk about it. it we need to talk about it because it's a thing, but somebody say it's not the main thing. It's not the main thing, but it's a thing. And Romans 1 outlines that for us so clearly the sin, our rejection of God, the condition that we are in because of the rejection of God. And this is the stuff 
that'll get me labeled, right? This is the stuff that'll get you labeled as a bigot. This is, this is what gets Christians labeled as, as the religious bigots, nailed, pegged, yep, sin, saying things have to change. But Romans 2, as we continue, I've got to turn the page, you might as well, if you can't find two, check the next page. Romans 2 explains why the reality of sin and this message that involves sin, why there's nothing bigoted about it at all. It's, it's not close to anything bigoted. And in verses 1 through 3, it says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on all those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, that you, you who judge, those, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, do you suppose that you will escape the judgment of God? So in case that you think that understanding sin or, or the reality of sin gives you the right to judge people who are sin just because you get it, Romans 2 is like, no, you're way off. Romans 2 is for you. It's like, oh, I know the definition of sin, which means I can call out everybody's sin. God's like, don't go judging people. Don't go judging for people for doing the same things you do. <laughs> sure, sure, maybe the specifics are different. This is what God's saying. The specifics of your sin might be different from somebody else. But, but the point is, is not has somebody done the same sin as somebody else? That's not the point. The point isn't who has more sin, who has what sin, who has which sin. The point is we all have sin. And, and so I want you to know this morning that, that believing in sin doesn't make you a bigot. Believing everybody except you has sin makes you a bigot. <laughs> it's a big difference. And, and none of this, none of this means that God isn't loving or kind. The next question that comes up when you start talking about all of this stuff is how could God be kind or loving and still be so judgmental against all of this sin? If God is kind and loving, won't he just forgive me? And verse three speaks to those who think that they're gonna escape the judgment of God just because they know what sin is and can call out everybody else's sin and he makes it really clear that doesn't give you any break at all. It makes it worse when you start judging everybody for doing the same things you do. But verse four, he speaks to those who think that God's righteous judgment isn't gonna apply to them just because he is kind. Verse four says this, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? We already went back to Genesis one, so we won't go back all the way to Genesis two again. But there's this verse in Genesis 2, 16 and 17, when God's laying out creation and he's telling Adam and Eve kind of how this all has to go. He lines out one, one rule for them in the garden. He says, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. I think too often we have this concept of sin that it's like all the fun stuff in life that God is prudish and lame and won't let us be a part of. And like the better God follower you are, the more miserable your life is and the less you smile and the less fun that you have. But we need to know something really clear that Genesis 2 tells us, tells us that why God hates sin. God doesn't hate sin because he hates fun. God hates sin because sin kills you. 
And I appreciate that. I'm glad my parents, when I was growing up, hated the stuff that was gonna kill me. (laughs) Sin is not awesome. The devil is not trying to throw you a great party that God won't let you go to just because he's against fun. The devil's a liar, actually, and, and sin never delivers on what it promises. What it does do is it always takes you farther than you wanna go, it'll always keep you longer than you wanna stay, and it will always cost you more than you wanna pay. And none of that happens because God hates you. It happens because the devil hates you. And it is the kindness of God that you can be forgiven, not to stay on the road to death. What's kind about that? Yeah, don't worry about it. Just keep on walking. It's the kindness of God to show you what your sin is that's leading you to death, let you experience the reality that you need grace, provide the grace for you so that you are able and empowered to turn around, turn away from walking into death and walk into the life that God has called you to. His kindness is to lead you to repentance. Romans 3, Romans 3.23 captures everything we've been saying when it says this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's the reality of sin. There's no bigotry in it. And there's no way out of it by judging or just by pretending that God's not actually gonna be the judge that he says that he is. All things, including each one of us, are created by God and were created for God. It is in God that we, have, that we live and we move and we have our being. It is knowing Him that is itself eternal life. But none of us are righteous, not even one of us. We've all turned aside. We have all exchanged the truth of God for a lie, worshiping ourselves instead of the creator. And as a result of this, we are living in a world and in a culture and in a reality that is reaping the consequences of that sin, the brokenness the misalignment, the twisting, the separation from God. This is the truth about the way things are. And this is the explanation for why things are the way that they are. And it's not the end of the story. It has to be the beginning of the story. But it is not the end of the story. Romans 3, 23 But if we keep reading, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And, somebody say, and. And the same, all, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. I want you to get this in verse 26. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that God might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What's so good about this good news is that through Christ, God is able to be both just and the justifier. Because he is good, because he is loving, he must be just. There must be justice. 
There must be justice, not just for the sins committed, but the consequence of those sins. Those things that aren't supposed to happen, that weren't supposed to happen to you. The things that aren't supposed to be the way that they are. There has to be justice for these things. And if God were to ignore all of the pain brought on by all of our sin, how could he be good? How could he be good and turn a blind eye? So Jesus offers himself, offers himself, and by his blood, that's what that word propitiation means. When he offered himself by his blood so that, so that God could pour out the wrath that sin deserves, the wrath demanded by sin, the wrath that justice calls for, the wrath that justice requires he could pour out on himself so that he could pour out grace on us. And not only did he do this to be just, but he did it so that he could be our justifier. It means somebody who stands over somebody condemned and makes a new declaration over them. It's a new declaration. It changes your status. That's what happens when somebody were to be a justifier. Somebody with the authority steps in to the room and says, yes, I know all of these things, but I'm here to declare a new verdict. I am the justifier. And he can do it because he served justice through himself. See, you aren't just forgiven by grace. You're made new by grace. You have a new identity. This is the good news. God has changed your identity. He has changed the fabric of who you are by grace. When you were a sinner defined by your sin, now you are a saint defined by his righteousness. Yes, you still sin, but that doesn't make you a sinner. It makes you a saint who's learning how to be like one. He's changed the identity. It's not defined by your behavior anymore. It's defined by the grace he poured out through his blood over you as not just just, but also your justifier. To build the culture that God has designed, to build the culture that God has called us to, we have to start with recognizing our need for God. We have to have, or we have to recognize the need that we all have the need that only he can fulfill and the need that he has made the way clear through his son, Jesus Christ. I want you to stand up as we close this morning. Part one of our Cultural Architects series. And the question is simple. You know, we wanna be a people who respond to the word of God, not just hear it, but, but do it. And when Jesus is, is preached here every week, the Bible promises that when Jesus' name is lifted up, he's drawing people to himself. And that doesn't just mean people who don't follow Jesus. It means people. God has been drawing you to himself this morning through his word, through his presence in worship, through your presence being here by the faith of the person next to you who's been singing the name of Jesus. God is drawing you closer to himself right now. Wherever you're coming from, we all have a next step that we can take. This isn't just an inner and out thing. This is a God, I want to take the next step towards following you. And we want to be a people. We always worship at the end because we want to be, be, a, be a people who respond to whatever it is that God's doing to the word of God. So my just simple question to you this morning is how do you need to respond? What's God doing in you? What's the next thing that God's calling you to? 
It might be something that you do quietly in your seat. It might be something that demands more of an outward response. We're going to have people off to the side of the room like we do every week, a prayer team that is just available to pray for you. Whatever you need, wherever you're coming from, you're in church. It ought to be the one place you can have somebody pray for you, right? And I want to encourage you, don't, don't worry about what anybody thinks. If God's doing something in you, just I need somebody to stand with me. I need somebody to pray for me. Just do it. Don't worry about anybody else. Do what you've got to do to respond to God. There might be something that you need to repent of this morning. Something that God's highlighted and said, you've been choosing yourself over me in this area. And I want to give you more life. So let's just turn. There's no condemnation in it. There's no shame in it. It's all freedom. It's all freedom. It may, it may hurt for a moment, but God's bringing you into life this morning. Come and move even in these final minutes in the mighty name.